0: Let's pray together. God and Father, we love coming together on Sunday mornings to to declare the glory of your name. You alone are God and our souls sing of your love. As Eugene has been reminding us, we are sojourners here. We're on a journey and we meet you here this morning as I love the words of that song said, in our lives of surrender, you reign in all the earth. As we've sojourned, as we've carried on our lives this week in faith and hope and love, there has been tension. And we know that tension is to be expected, and yet it's still hard. Our journey involves some discomfort and sometimes great suffering. And we know it's because we are between what you've already done for us in Christ and what is not yet fulfilled in Christ. So we pray for each other as Paul did for the Colossians. We ask God that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will through all the wisdom and understanding that your spirit gives. May we live lives worthy of you and pleasing to you, bearing fruit and growing in knowledge of you. Strengthen us with all power according to your glorious might that we may have great endurance and patience and give you joyful thanks. Thank you for rescuing us from the dominion of darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of your Son, whom you love and in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. We give you thanks, Lord, even as we repent of our faults and weaknesses, the areas where we stumble. Make us worthy as we follow the Lamb our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, made, who was made flesh and experienced the challenges and tensions of humanity. We have so much to thank you for, even in the midst of the tensions. We pray for the COVID-19 pandemic. Many in our PBCC family now have the virus, and we pray for their rest and their swift recovery. We pray against complications and also against guilt, shame, embarrassment, fear, or over-worry of spreading it to others. So many are contracting it now despite precautions because this variant is so very, very contagious. Help us not to be judgmental of one another or make assumptions. Instead, help us keep on loving one another. Despite COVID, you still reign in all the earth. We pray for the tension, not just around COVID, but around politics and US policy and international tension between countries. We pray for those in the medical field. We lift teachers, administrators, and students in schools to you. We pray for those in government work, in negotiations internationally, and we pray for those on the mission field. May all find the knowledge of your will and be strengthened with your power and find the endurance and patience to forge ahead. And once again, Lord, we pray for rain, and we pray for firefighters now battling the Big Sur blaze. Oh Lord, how we we need you. We pray for Eugene this morning, as he brings us your word. Thank you for his time and study, and we thank you for the many among us who bring the word to others, or lead, either on Sunday mornings, or in small groups, or growth groups, or other means. We give you thanks, Lord, and honor and glory this morning, you are Lord God Almighty the one who is and always was and who reigns forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome again everyone. It is great to see you. If you are new today, a special welcome to you and we would love a chance to have a more opportunity to welcome you. So we invite you if you are new or you haven't done so yet to fill out that card in the pew rack in front of you. And you can drop it in the box in the back, or you can drop it by the welcome table. And so today we have the joy of having some of our Mandarin class readers. So I wanna bring up David Chen and Vivian Lee from the class. And I had the joy of watching them be baptized in November. Some of you may recognize them from that. So come on up and share the creed with us.
1: 我信上帝全能的父，I
2: believe in God, in the Father
1: Almighty.
2: Creator of heaven and earth.
1: I believe
2: in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit.
1: 从童女玛利亚所生,
2: and born of the Virgin Mary He suffered under Pontius Pilate
1: 被钉在十字架上死了葬了
2: was crucified, died and was buried
1: 下到阴间,
2: He descended to the
1: dead on the
2: third day He rose again He ascended into heaven
1: and is seated
2: at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit,
1: the
2: Holy Universal Church, the communion of the
1: saints,
2: the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, Amen. and the life everlasting. Amen.
3: Good morning, brothers and sisters. I once again have the privilege of sharing the word with you today. And I do want to remind you that today is Sunday the 23rd, and that means that we are drawing to the end ...of the first session of our series on Paul's letter to the Colossians. So God willing, we will return to this letter later in the year. But for now, we've just got two more Sundays together in Colossians. So I thought that at this point, a little bit past the midpoint... ...that it would be helpful for us to remember uh, where we've all been together over the last few sermons. So over the first three sermons of this session, we laid down some definitions... And we identified a need. Or to put it another way, we have gone from what, the question of what, to the question of how. We started with the question, what do we mean when we say that Christ is glorious, that Christ has glory? And we define the glory of Christ in terms of his weightiness, his mass, his gravity, his reality. Christ's glory is his innate ability to bend all things around himself As the center of everything. And we followed that up, we followed that what question up with another what question. What does the impact of Christ look like in the life of a believer? And we described his impact using the Pauline triad of faith, hope, and love. And last week, we raised the question of how. How do we manifest? the impact of Christ in our lives? How do we grow in faith, hope, and love? And we saw from Paul's prayer for the Colossians that faith, hope, and love are formed in us over many encounters with the glory of God and Jesus Christ. We use several metaphors to work this out. Some may be better than others, but the one we landed on, the one that Paul led us to, is that of the journey. The Christian life is a journey. It's really an exodus a lifelong sojourn in which we take steps of faith, hope, and love, propelled and inspired by the knowledge of God's will for us and for this world. And so it became clear that in order to continue in this sojourn, we need to be filled with the knowledge of God's will to see God's glory in Christ. And we need to know his will and to see his glory not only once, but many times, as often as we can and as deeply as possible we need to encounter his reality we need to recognize his gravity and to allow him to pull us toward himself that we might be recentered and rebuilt around him again and again and again and again and that brings us to the final six verses that we will cover in this session of our series on colossians colossians 1:15 through 20 Having established the Colossians and every believer's need to see the glory of God and Jesus Christ again and again, no matter where they may be in their spiritual journeys, Paul, he gave his readers the opportunity to do just that. He reminded them of truths that would sustain them in their sojourn. And today, as we begin looking into these truths, my hope is that God will use them to stir our hearts and empower us as well for our own spiritual journeys. And so just a quick note that today's sermon will not have an application in the traditional sense of it. Some passages you can look at and immediately know this is how I want to apply this passage this week, or this is the person I need to share this with, or this is the person I need to treat differently. Some passages are just like that. But there are other passages that require us just to gaze, just to look, and just to worship. And I say just, not because that's a small thing, but because sometimes we need to remind ourselves that that is the only thing that we really need to do. And that is what we are confronted with in our passage today. The previous paragraph ended with Paul reminding the Colossian believers of what God the Father had done for them. In verses 13 and 14, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. As you might remember last week, just as the mention of God the Father in verse 12 inspired Paul to write these two verses, so the mention of his beloved son here launched Paul into a meditation on Christ's glory in verses 15 through 20. And we'll be splitting these six verses into two parts over today and next Sunday. Today we'll be looking at just the first half, verses 15 through Through 17. And in a break from the norm, I'd like to read these verses to you all before we study them more closely. And I would remind you that the He at the beginning of this paragraph is Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, I'm not the best reader of poetry, to be honest. Maybe I'll get some practice with Brian. But perhaps you could hear the poetry in Paul's writing nevertheless There is a sense of balance to these verses, a a balance that is reinforced by Paul's use of parallelism and repetition. And this balance is really strong enough for us to wonder if this paragraph might actually be a poem in disguise. And if we break down the sentences and give each phrase its own line as best as we can fit on a single slide... And then if we play around with the indentation, positioning similar phrases in parallel to one another, then we begin to see that our intuition, that these verses are actually a poem, are likely correct. These verses have a clear poetic shape, a a shape that we might recognize as a chiasm. A chiasm occurs when an author or a poet makes a series of statements, then repeats those statements in reverse order, usually with some interesting modification or development. The result is a text that begins with an original idea, then narrows down to a central idea, then flares back out to the original idea, reinforcing both the original idea and that central idea. This is why it's called a chiasm. The Greek letter chi is wide at the top, narrow in the middle, wide again at the bottom. I only seem to be wide in the middle. (laughs) Chiasms can be as short as four lines, presenting just two ideas, a central idea and another idea wrapping around it. But longer chiasms can feature many ideas, with each idea showing up as a pair of parallel statements wrapping around that central idea, like a set of Russian nesting dolls or the layers of an onion. Color-coding a chiasm can help us understand and identify the sets of parallel statements as we've done here for our passage. Each set of parallel statements represents an idea Paul was trying to get across. And as you can see, they've each been given their own color. So what was Paul trying to communicate then in this poem, in this chiastic structure? Well, three things. Christ's divinity, Christ's primacy, and Christ's totality. As I read these verses, as I personally read them, these are the three ideas that jump out at me. So let's take a closer look at them, starting with the first pair of lines, the beginning of verse 15, and the end of verse 17. Paul launched his meditation on the glory of God in Jesus Christ with the declaration that he is the image of the invisible God. God the Father is spirit and therefore invisible. He exists, unbound to any physical or tangible, visible form. In all his appearances throughout the Bible, God the Father appeared to his people in a mediated way, cloaked and veiled and in things that people's finite hearts and minds could comprehend. But he himself is invisible. He is uncontainable into a physical form. He's irreducible to something that we can handle or touch. But Christ... Christ has made the invisible God visible to us by presenting to us the image of his glory. Christ is the perfect reflection of God the Father's character and personality. He has given us a comprehensible look at who God the Father is. Christ is the image of the invisible God, making God known to us in a way no one ever has before. But haven't we seen images of God before wasn't humankind after all created in God's image I'm looking at a bunch of images of God right now this is indeed what we read in Genesis 1 26 to 27 then God said let us make man in our image after our likeness so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them As the first humans, Adam and Eve were created in God's image. So what makes Christ's image-bearing unique or special? Or or is Paul simply referring to Christ's incarnation as a human, that he donned the humanity that had been made in God's image when he came to save us from our sins? Well, peeking ahead to the next clause of chiasm, we see that Paul's meditation on Christ's glory sits outside of human history. It says he is before all things in the very next line. In verse 17, Paul's view of Christ in this poem extended to the pre-creation past, to Christ's eternal existence in the eternal past. So Paul's declaration that Christ is the image of the invisible God probably isn't a reference to his incarnation at all, but to who he was even before the creation of the world. And when we remember that image-bearing was a metaphor in the ancient world for sonship, it becomes clear that Paul was referring to Christ's sonship, Christ's identity as God the Son. You see, brothers and sisters, before he took upon himself the image of God in human flesh, Christ was already God's Son, God the Son, the eternal image of God the Father. He was already the one who perfectly reflected the heart and the will and the character and the glory of God the Father. This is what Paul was pointing to at the beginning of verse 15. Not so much Christ's eventual humanity, but Christ's eternal divinity. Paul made a similar declaration in another poem from another letter he wrote, Philippians 2, 1-11. In verse 5 of that poem, Paul urged the Philippians to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This language of being in the form of God points to Christ's divinity, his status as a second person of the Trinity, second to the Father in function, but co-equal with the Father in divinity. This is what the Apostle John declared of Christ at the beginning of his gospel. John 1, 1-2, verses that I'm sure are very familiar to us now. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Though John exchanged the image metaphor for that of the Word, he was essentially saying the same thing as Paul was. Christ is the image of the invisible God. God made known. God's self-expression. God's own reflection. But perhaps the closest parallel among the New Testament authors comes from the author of Hebrews. Who declared in the opening of his letter that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. Hebrews 1.3 When we see Christ, we see the glory of God. And this translation is made possible by the fact that Christ is himself co-equal to God the Father in his divinity. And for the author of Hebrews, Christ demonstrates his divinity by sustaining reality. If you look at the rest of verse 3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Christ's divinity implies that he does what only God can do. He Keeps all things going. He keeps existence existing. He keeps reality cohering and continuing until all his purposes for reality are accomplished. And he does all this not by some extreme exertion of effort. No, he upholds the universe by the Word of his power. He simply speaks and his will is done He simply declares, let there be, and existence cannot help but bow in obedience to him. Paul's logic followed the same course as the author of Hebrews. At the end of verse 17 of our passage, Paul paired his declaration that Christ is the image of the invisible God with the parallel statement, and in him all things hold together. Christ's divinity implies his might in holding all things together together, from every galaxy, to every solar system, to every molecule, to every cluster of electrons orbiting, neutrons and protons fused at their core, Christ holds it all together. This second idea, the second idea presented in Paul's Chiastic poem begins in the middle of verse 15. Christ is the firstborn of all creation, he wrote. If this phrase stood alone without any context, then we could interpret it in a number of ways, including that Christ was literally born first, that Christ was created by God, created first, but created nonetheless. And that, that's a difficult thing to say about someone who is supposed to be God. The idea of being firstborn certainly can suggest that someone was born first, but as almost any firstborn child will tell you, being the firstborn also implies a level of importance, of prominence, of primacy. I'm not a firstborn child myself, so I, I only know that from a distance. But the biblical authors, for the biblical authors, this dimension of firstborn status was at least as significant as the chronological dimension. So much so that they sometimes arose independent of each other throughout the Bible, the primacy of firstborn status was often given to people who weren't actually born first. Abraham's grandson Jacob, the secondborn, was given primacy over his brother Esau. And in turn, Jacob gave his grandson Ephraim primacy over his brother, his older brother Manasseh. And we can't forget that David, David the lastborn among his brothers, was elevated to the kingship of all Israel. And this last example of firstborn status being given to someone who wasn't actually born first was commemorated in one of the Psalms, Psalm 89. In verses 20 and then 26 to 27, we read the psalmist declare in the voice of God, I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest." Of the kings of the earth. In these verses, we see the firstborn status tied to the anointed one's primacy over the kings of the earth. And the author of Hebrews picked up on this and made a similar connection between firstborn status and primacy in Hebrews 1 5 and 6. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? The answer is none. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The firstborn in, this verse, in these verses is Christ. And the author of Hebrews declared that Christ, as the firstborn of creation, is worthy to be worshipped by angels. It's about primacy, not birth order, or really birthing of any kind. So it is possible to take this phrase in our passage, Christ is the firstborn of all creation, as describing Christ's importance, his primacy over creation. Not a declaration that Christ was created first, among creation. And this phrase's parallel at the beginning of verse 17, confirms this interpretation. And he is before all things. He was not born, past tense, first among all things, but he exists, present tense, before all things. Paul had Christ's primacy in mind, his preeminence, his prominence, his priority, brothers and sisters. This becomes even clearer in the verses we will be covering next week. Where the word preeminent is used in conjunction with the word firstborn to describe Christ's glory in the church. Christ is preeminent, brothers and sisters. He comes first. He comes before all things. He has primacy, power, and authority over all things. And this primacy is not given to him brothers and sisters. It's not a status that he has received from anyone, but one that he innately possesses as God the Son. His divinity grants him primacy definitionally, inherently, automatically. He has primacy because he is divine. In other words, his very being, his very existence demands the surrender and subordination of all that he sustains by his divine might. And that brings us to the central idea, the heart of our chiasm. verse 16. At the beginning of this verse, Paul asserted, for by him, by Christ, all things were created. Christ deserves a surrender of all things because Christ sustains all things, and Christ sustains all things because it was his power that brought them into existence in the first place. But didn't God the Father create the world? Isn't that what we affirm in the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And we don't see Christ mentioned in Genesis 1, do we? Where God spoke the world into existence. We don't see Christ mentioned by name in Genesis 1. That's, that's true. But that does not mean that he wasn't present in creation, When Moses penned those words, it was not yet time to reveal the Son of God into the world. But that does not mean that he wasn't active in his hiddenness. God the Father willed the world into existence, yes, but it was God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who executed the will of his Father as the Word of God, as the image of God, as the the Father's self-expression. Christ did what his Father desired and brought creation into existence. And this understanding of Christ's role in creation was not unique to Paul. We see this in the Apostle John's thinking as well. Looking once again at the opening of the Gospel of John, we see the Apostle following a similar logic. As we observed earlier, he began his Gospel by declaring, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. But John followed this with the assertion in verse 3 that all Things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All things owe their existence, not merely their continuance, to Christ, brothers and sisters. He sustains all things because he is the one who created them. And by all things, John really meant all things. And so did Paul, as we see in his expansion of this idea in the middle of verse 16. Paul offered some examples of what is included in the phrase, all things. He says, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. The scope of Christ's creative power spanned heaven and earth. This is a merism, which is a literary device in which the writer uses the endpoints of a range to imply the entirety of the range. And so heaven and earth literally means everything from the highest point of heaven to the lowest point of earth. This totality includes both visible and invisible things. Things pertaining to the physical realm that we can reach out and touch and the things pertaining to the spiritual realm, which are hidden from us. Whether we are talking about the mountains and the oceans and the planets and the galaxies of the observable universe. Or we're talking about angels and demons and the rest of the typically unobservable cosmos. It was by Christ's sovereign power and authority that they came into existence. And this includes even those things that are intangible and impersonal. Ideas and concepts and abstract systems and mechanisms that seem too big for any one person to comprehend, much less control. Christ's grip on all these things, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, is total, brothers and sisters. It is unclear if Paul has spiritual or human figures and dominions and systems in mind, but ultimately it really doesn't matter because he has total power and control and authority over all of it. Nothing escapes his grasp. Whether he made them or sovereignly allowed them to come into existence, his hold on every aspect of reality is total. And so will his worship be in the end. The totality of Christ's power and glory over reality will be revealed when Christ returns And when it is fully revealed, all reality will be brought to its knees in worship by the gravitational pull of his glory. Brothers and sisters of PBCC, Christ's glory is measureless. His divinity is undeniable. His primacy is irresistible and his authority over reality is total. This is what Paul put forward for the Colossian believers to reflect upon. Christ's divinity, primacy, and totality. And what these three ideas really amount to, brothers and sisters, is Christ's ultimate reality. His glory is his ultimate reality. That he is ultimately more real than anything else in what we think of as reality. Just sit with that for a moment. He is more real than what we think of as real because he created all of it and he sustains all of it and he exists outside of it and he will outlast it all in the end. Christ is more real than anything we think of as real, brothers and sisters. One of my seminary professors, Dr. John Jefferson Davis, he loved to speak about Christ's ultimate reality. And he especially loved speaking about it in relation to all the other so-called realities that make up the human experience. And he would show us a chart to help us conceptualize it, and I've adapted it for us this morning. You don't owe me any tuition. It's fine. At the top of the chart, at the shallowest level of reality, we have stories, dreams, and imagination, On this level of reality are those things that we form in our minds and bring into this world out of our creativity. We bring it into this world, but sometimes we we might not. We, We might just simply dismiss it or reduce it to nothing because of our total control over this level. Sometimes we simply dispose of these things and brush them away and focus on other more important things. Things on this level of reality can feel real to us, but we know that they are not actually real. For example, a powerful, vivid dream that vanishes from your memory when you wake up in the morning. It felt real for a time, but it disappears. It ceases to exist, and we go on with our days like nothing happened. That's because we exist on a deeper, more substantive level of reality. We are more real than our stories, dreams, and imaginations. And we know this because when they end, we remain. Not only that, but we can influence or outright create and control our stories, dreams, and imaginations. But this influence and control, it doesn't work the other way around, does it? Our our dreams cannot insist that we stay asleep. No, we and the world that we live in made of the same substance of which we are made, we exist on a deeper level of reality. But there exists another level to reality, one that is even more persistent than our own, the level of cosmic powers and spiritual authorities, as we see in the Scriptures. This level is populated by invisible beings and their invisible dominions that are outside of our reach and direct observation. And just as we can influence the world of our imaginations, so these invisible beings can exert an influence on our level of reality. We're talking, of course, about angels, demons, sin, death, and Satan. These forces, both good and evil, exist in a more durable way than we do. And their continued existence does not depend on ours. But thankfully, there exists a level of reality even deeper than this. The deepest level of reality, the ultimate level of reality, which is the Godhead. Reality does not get any more real than God the Son, God the Father, God the Spirit the triune god outlasts he outexists every other level of reality and his influence and direct control of every other level of reality is unrivaled and irresistible he is in total control of every other level of reality because he is responsible for their existence and we see glimpses of this throughout scripture it was this ultimate reality that god put on display for moses when he brought his glory to bear upon the land And Pharaoh of Egypt. When he turned the Nile to blood and blotted out the sun's light, when he claimed the lives of the firstborn and parted the Red Sea, when he caused manna to rain from heaven and the stone to pour forth water, God was revealing his ultimate reality and command over creation. And it was this ultimate reality that God put on display for Isaiah when he encountered him in the temple the same year that King Uzziah died. The same year that human authority failed and met its demise, Isaiah saw a glimpse of God's ultimate reality, surrounded by singing angels who could not help but shield their eyes from his unbearably glorious glory. And it was the same reality, the same ultimate reality that Jesus put on display throughout his earthly ministry. Christ demonstrated his ultimate reality every time he performed a miracle in the Gospels, when he turned water into wine, when he commanded the storm to be still, when he created food from nothing in the feeding of the thousands, when he healed the leper and the blind and the lame, and when he raised the dead, not once, not twice, as if it was a fluke, but three times in his ministry, when he himself, when he himself the firstborn of heaven, rose from the grave. Christ was demonstrating his ultimate reality as a God on whom all, upon whom all existence depends. And it was this ultimate reality that Christ put on display, of course, for Paul, then called Saul, when he encountered him on the road to Damascus. The glory of God in Christ was so overwhelmingly powerful, so undeniably real, that Paul could not help but go blind at the sight of it. And as my professor, Dr. Jack Davis, explained to us, it is this ultimate reality that we get a taste of, however minuscule, whenever we play a video game. Some of you might recognize this as the title screen to the classic game of the Nintendo Entertainment System, Super Mario Brothers. In case your memory needs jogging, that brownish smudge in front of that triangular green hill is Mario, a middle-aged Italian plumber. The character you control in this game, and this game largely sees you moving from the left side of the screen to the right side of the screen, dodging enemies and saving princesses in a fantasy world populated by sentient mushrooms. This was the first video game I remember playing as a child. And then this over here is one of its sequels, Super Mario World, for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. This was released many years after the original Super Mario Brothers, and it was enough time for video game technology to advance and to offer improved visuals, so you might notice more colors, more details in the picture in this picture than the one before. But you're really still doing the same thing. You're just moving Mario left to right, and Sometimes you get to ride a dinosaur. Now, this was the Mario that I met in middle school on my Nintendo 64. Super Mario 64. And this represented a leap in technology. Because no longer were you just moving left to right, now we were able to realize in a virtual space a three-dimensional world. For players controlling Mario, there was a castle to explore, there were fields to run in, mountains to climb, open air to soar through if you happened to find a hat with wings on it. It was incredible. And for the first time, I remember as I was playing this game, I really felt like I was inside this video game world, moving around in it, having my being present in it. But these days, video games are even more realistic. This is Super Mario Odyssey for the Nintendo Switch. And as you can see, the level of visual fidelity has skyrocketed. You can actually see Mario's facial features, round as they may be. He casts a realistic shadow on the ground, if you can make that out. His surroundings look like they could be photos of real-life settings. And if you look closely, even at this screenshot, you'll see individual bricks making up the buildings and photorealistic surfaces like concrete and asphalt and patches of grass. You'll even see street signs telling you where you are in this three-dimensional world replete with pedestrians and taxis and goals and ambitions. Other games have taken the fantastical realism even farther. Here's a screenshot of a very popular game right now called Final Fantasy XIV. There's been 14 of them. The setting of this game is a world similar to Middle Earth of the Lord of the Rings, In this world, there are monsters and beasts like the dragon pictured here, and you control a character who has access to various weapons and skills to fight them. Over the course of the game, you are given tasks to complete, like kill this dragon, for example. And you're also given jobs to execute. Doing these jobs will, believe it or not, it will net you currency in this game world. And you can use that currency to then buy new clothing, and a place to live, and a mode of transportation. You can buy more weapons, more tools to do more jobs. You can pay to get trained in new skills and abilities. You can buy access to new places, to visit new continents and new worlds, new countries and places in this world. You can even buy a rod and some bait, and you can go fishing between jobs in Final Fantasy XIV. And you can do all of this with other people, other characters controlled by other people around the world. But when you're done playing for the day, you can turn it all off. Whether we're talking about Mario, or Final Fantasy, or any other video game, in a moment, you can reach out with your finger, and you can just turn the video game off, can't you? The screen will go blank, And that world with its tasks and jobs and clothes and fishing and whatever else, that world will cease to exist. It will disappear. It will end. But you will go on living, won't you? You, in your greater, more persistent reality, you will get up and you'll get something to eat or take a walk outside. Or do some work on that project that's coming due. Because you, brothers and sisters, are more real than the video game and the so-called reality present within there. And of course this applies to movies and shows on television if you're not into gaming. It, It applies to literary works of fiction, to the worlds that we imagine and create. When the credits roll or the series finale ends or we close the book, that world vanishes. It ceases to exist. It's gone. In the same way, brothers and sisters, Christ, the creator and sustainer and ruler of all things, has in himself the power to simply say the word, and all of what we call reality would simply cease to exist. It would go blank, disappear, end, without any hesitation or protest. There's no last line for us to give. But he would remain. He would continue. He would go on because his reality, brothers and sisters, is ultimate. When the psalmist considered this glory, refracted and reflected through the heavens and the earth when, that God created, he wrote these lines. He said, they will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Apostle Paul, when he considered the glory of God in Christ, when he considered his divinity and primacy and totality, he wrote these lines He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and For him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together brothers and sisters of pbcc what comes to your mind when you gaze into the glory of god in the face of jesus christ when you sit before his divinity his primacy his totality his ultimate reality what stirs in your hearts what does his spirit move you to say or to think or to do? Do we sense his ultimate reality asserting itself over and necessary against the so-called realities that fill our lives, over and against our own so-called reality? How does his ultimate reality change the way we view ourselves and our lives? Now, I know that this is a very conceptual stuff here. Brothers and sisters, this is where the glory of God begins. This is where we have to start with him. To see him, the creator of all things, and allow that reality to bear down upon us until it impresses itself deep within our hearts. Last week we asked our brother Spencer to provide some music for us and to give us the, the chance to enter into an extended time of prayer and reflection. And I understand that it might have been uncomfortably long, but the reality of Christ is uncomfortably big. I'd like for us to do that again. But this time I'd also like to play for you that clip that we used to start off this session of our series on Colossians. It was a demonstration of gravity where we used a tablecloth, a tablecloth, A three pound weight and some tennis table balls to show how objects of mass bend space time around them and draw objects of lesser mass into their center. And we connected this to the glory of Christ, that his ultimate reality calls for our reorientation and recentering. So as we hear the music playing and as we see the video on the screen, brothers and sisters, I want to invite you to enter into a time of just orienting yourself around that reality. Let's just bend our hearts around that glory again. But now receive this benediction. As you go from this place and you enter into the worlds with all their virtuality, the worlds of your workplaces and your families and your friends, your education, all of those things that seem so real, in the midst of all of it, may God allow you to feel and to know the weight of his divinity and the reality of his primacy and the full grip of his total control over all things. May you live in Christ's ultimate reality. Be blessed and be well.